We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donovan Smith. Hey, good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing more scuffles in the legislative chamber, the rather controversial nomination of a head for the Central Election Commission, the renaming of the agency handling US-Taiwan affairs, a meeting between a Taiwan official and a high-ranking US official, and an interesting idea for a night out. But we'll begin with the DPP this week, finally finalising the format for its 2020 presidential primary. The party says it will choose its candidate using a format that includes three-way public opinion polls to compare the popularity of its nominees against the two frontrunners nationwide. President Tsai Ing-wen and former Premier William Lai will be pitted against Taipei Mayor Ke Wen-je and Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guo-yu in that poll. Now, the polls will take place from June the 10th through the 14th via telephone with an equal weighting of samples obtained from both landlines and cell phones. A televised forum will be held for the two candidates to discuss their platforms and the DPP says it will announce its candidate by mid-June. So there we go. Ross, will begin with the DPP here, finally finalising its form and everyone's excited, except there's yet no date for the discussions on the television. I think you hit the key word when you said finally finalized, and that's been the problem with this process over the course of the last few months, and specifically ever since William Lai announced that he was going to challenge Tsai Ing-wen in the primary. So the the party originally had a process for its primaries. They've already implemented this process for the legislative primaries to the extent that there's a, a legislative district with a primary. And Mr. Lai and his supporters are extremely angry. I mean, we, we shouldn't underestimate the depth of the anger by Mr. Lai and his supporters over the late change in the process and all, well, or you take a step back and say how long it's gone on until this process has been uh, finally passed by the Central Executive Committee at the DPP and, and how long this has gone on and that they're using mobile phones because uh, the original process had only landlines. Uh, to be transparent here, Lai supporters clearly feel that calling only landlines would benefit Mr. Lai. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that. There's a perception that his voters or his supporters in, in parts of Taiwan might be older. Uh, maybe they're farmers. Maybe they're sitting at home and they don't have mobile phones. They're, that's their argument. Uh, although there's also some data that indicates his support might still be better than Tsai, even with mixing in uh, mobile phones. But but anyway, the key thing here is how long this has gone on, late changes to the process. Uh, they're saying it wasn't transparent. It wasn't democratic. It really uh, violates all the good uh, principles of what the DPP is supposed to stand for. So next question is, if he loses because he thinks this process has has um, not really been a good process, will he depart the party and run as an independent candidate? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, all, uh, that's all definitely very true. I'll add a little bit of context to this. Um, from the Thai side, I think, uh, because this obviously is definitely not a good look for the party. The, the these chronic delays and uh, it's it's clearly been uh, manipulated uh, on the part of the the DPP brass, um, you know, in favor of Thai. So that that is not a good look. Uh, but on the other hand, the part of the problem was is that in a lot of ways Thai was blindsided by the entrance. 
uh, out of the lie into the into the into the primary. Now, last uh, last year when he was the premier, he specifically said he wouldn't challenge her um, in the presidential primary this year. So uh, that's also a bad look for lie. Um, and what so and basically normally what happens around this time is that an incumbent president is never challenged and then the the president usually has low popularity ratings and this has been true you know going going back to Tensabian, this is true under Ma Ying-jeou, is that right around this time, the opinion polls are low because generally the president is concentrated on their job. They're not really concentrating on being popular. They go out and start campaigning, and in the last half of the year, um, and so they start reminding people why they were elected in the first place. And so people start to warm again, and they start, you know, the government starts coming out with some, you know, Pop, you know, some you know some popular with the public initiatives. The president goes out and smiles a lot, shakes lots of hands, does campaign style activities, and then their po- the president's popularity starts to rise heading into the general election. Now, by lie entering the race, um, as uh, you know, as Ross described here, you know, this all these things started happening that were that were basically rigged against lie. On the other hand, from Thai supporters' uh, view, is that lie shouldn't have entered the race in the first place, and this totally blindsided the president when she had not even begun to campaign, uh, and there was no time for her to go out there and go through the normal process. Of bringing back the, uh, you know, bringing up the the approval ratings and so on and so forth, before you know, before it was necessary, which was assumed to be the general. So there, there's a kind of a, a fair bit of blame and distrust, I think, right now going going around on both sides. Um, and so this is this this, and so really, it does come down to the question. Um, I, you know, it, it, it's possible that lie if. He loses, and uh, I don't think that he would initially jump uh, to become an independent candidate. But if a lot of his supporters, and if there, you know, there are enough people going out there calling for him to, uh, he may go through this whole routine, and he may encourage it. Uh, the typical routine here, which is common in local politics, of oh, I couldn't possibly, oh, I couldn't possibly, oh no, oh no, no way I could do that. Oh, but so many people are clamoring for it. I guess I have to, and I could see that scenario. But I do. But uh, I think a much more, even if that doesn't happen, a worrying scenario is just simply that a lot of lie supporters just simply stay home in the general election. Uh, which is a distinct possibility, or there could be another independent candidate, which either could be lie or someone who's not lie, who they may support more than uh, Tai going into the general. Right, let's look at the other side now, and a mayor Hang Yu from Kaohsiung. We haven't talked about him for a few weeks, but of course the press here just still can't get enough of him. Now, this week he claimed to be the target of a conspiracy against his administration. Speaking to reporters very briefly after a city council meeting, Han said that many odd things have occurred since he took office, such as the disappearance of a city government document and the possibility that he's being bugged or spied upon. Now, the statement came after a city hall employee was caught 
court for illegally entering Han's office several times since last December. The man has since been fired from his post and police say that he's facing charges of theft. Police also say that officers didn't find any listening devices in Han's office and a former city employee has said that no government documents actually left the building. But as Han's been defending himself against some conspiracy, he's also getting ready to take his show on the road as he'll be attending a big rally in Taipei tomorrow and he's also heading to Taichung on June the 22nd for another political rally. So, Ross, Han Guoyu, centre of a conspiracy theory, while he's still not really settling in in Kaohsiung, he wants to take his show on the road, so to speak. Well, it shouldn't surprise us that people have it in for Han or they're out to get him. Uh, so if, and then emphasize the if, if any of these allegations are true, you know, if there was a former city government employee who was trying to find dirt, uh, people following Han around trying to find dirt, and there's been some accusations in that regard in the news over the last few days, none of that should surprise us. There's a certainly a strong depth of, of anti-Han feeling, not necessarily only in Kaohsiung, but across Taiwan. However, we should always keep in mind in this conversation that the voters of Kaohsiung City did elect him by a very large margin. Uh, so the key barometer here shouldn't be uh, uh, conspiracy theories, but actually whether or not he's performing well as mayor, which brings us to his his uh, roadshow, as he called it. And this will be a good barometer of his support uh, to win the KMT presidential nomination. Uh, depending on how many people turn out. Uh, also, something to keep in mind is the honesty or accuracy of the media coverage, because certain media have been accused of uh, being way too favorable to Han over the past uh, six to nine months from the campaign through to uh, the first few months of his administration in Kaohsiung uh, City. Uh, so that's also an aspect to watch uh, for the rally in Taipei, as well as the one later in June in Taichung, is how is it portrayed? Do, do, does the media inflate the number of attendees? Uh, do they, does the media overstate the level of enthusiasm? On the other hand, if we go back to the uh, election campaign season, there were elect- uh, enthusiastic election rallies for Han Goyu. And there's still a lot of people around Taiwan. I mean, we know from the polls, Gavin, that the polls consistently show that in, in, in whether it's one-on-one versus Guo Taiming, Terry Go for, for the KMT nomination or one-on-three, uh, one if you include Wang Jingping and, and Ju, Eric Julie Lun, uh, uh, Han still has a high level of support he, in some polls. He beats all those guys for the KMT nomination. Similarly, we also know from polling data in, in three-way races uh, with Tai Ing-wen or Lai Qingda and Ko Wenjia uh, that a lot of polls show that Han, if he doesn't win, he's right there. You, you can't say he has no chance and it would be absolutely uh, ridiculous for him to run for president. So there, there's still a strong level of support for Han Goyu, despite uh, the inevitable, uh, I'd say, deflation from the high levels or, or the enthusiasm from when he took office. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, I mean, it's natural that his polls would come down a little bit by this point. I mean, he hasn't had much of a chance to do do uh, very much in Kaohsiung. Uh, I think critics would say he isn't doing anything at all in Kaohsiung. Um, and... Um, you know, and and he hasn't really had much time to. He's been so bogged down with his, his uh, international trips and uh, effectively campaigning for president. But oh, oh no, I couldn't possibly. Um, now the, he's coming down in the polls, and so he, the, there is that question: Is he collapsing in the polls, or is he just coming down? And, I, and that's sort of what um, 
uh, I think what Ross is alluding to. And what I'm watching for here is that, I mean, some of the shine is definitely coming off uh, Han Guoyu. What I really want to see is whether or not he's got a floor. Um, and effectively what I mean by this is that is there are quite a few people who have emotionally uh, committed themselves to Hanguoyu. They've socially committed themselves. They've committed themselves in such a way that it'd be very hard for them to walk back their support for Hanguoyu. Um, I think you know, even if they started to doubt it. But I think a lot of these people, you know, they continue to support him regardless. They're 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 all in for him, and they're going to remain all in for him because they believe in him. He is a charismatic guy, and he is very very good at uh, evoking hopes and and positive dreams. And you know, and he's a very positive campaigner. Um, so the question mark is, is that, yes, his polls are coming down. The, que- uh, the real question mark, is this the beginning of a rout, which is a complete collapse in his polls, a, um, a widespread disillusionment, or is, he, uh, is this just simply a little bit of the shine coming off? His strong supporters are going to be there for him, and he's going to maintain that floor. So, yes, these, these two rallies, the one in Taipei on the 1st, and I'm going to be watching, I think, even more closely, the one in Taichung on the 22nd. Taipei's a little bit of an odd duck as a market. In the last campaign when he was elected mayor, um, the, the, all the promotions throughout the center and the south basically sidelined Wu Duanyi and Ding Shouzhong and then left them up in Taipei. Where, and then the, you know, all the campaign ads down here were all Han Guoyu, Lu Xiaoyan, and Hou Yui all pictured together. Uh, and that's, and so, and a lot of Wang Jinping. And now, of course, there's, you know, Wang Jinping's running as well. So who knows what's going to happen between him and Han Guoyu. That's a whole other issue, issue to, to consider. Right, moving on, and lawmakers this Tuesday once again set a rather questionable example in the legislative chamber when they exchanged blows, pushes and insults prior to and during a vote on the Cabinet's nominee for the chairman of the Central Election Commission. Now, former Yunlin County Magistrate Lee Jin Yong was elected to the post, but not before opposition lawmakers occupied the podium, forcefully seized the ballot box, and scuffles simply broke out between lawmakers from opposing parties, and several photos adorned the newspaper the next day of several lawmakers actually on the floor of the chamber. Pretty grotty floor, I would have thought, with all those people walking around there. But if you want to lie on the floor, I guess you lie on the floor. Now, the KMT says Lee is too politically partisan for what should be a non-partisan post and that his affiliation with the DPP makes him ineligible to run. While the KMT's 2020 hopeful Terry Gore is claiming that Lee's nomination has been designed to ensure President Tsai Ing-wen's re-election next year. Now, obviously, the KMT there, Ross, has a bit of a, bit of a point to make, but I think Terry Gore's statement might be a bit of a push. It's better for the Central Election Commission to have been someone not quite as partisan as Mr. Lee, given the number of political elected offices, not just appointed offices that he has held in the past. So even if it was somebody who, who had worked in, in various capacities for the party, whether internally, for example, at party headquarters or externally, for example, as, as an election law lawyer advisor. Uh, you think about you know, an example of somebody like a, a Gu Li Xiong who came from the legal field into the government, although as a lawyer he had worked uh, for the DPP. Uh, but you have somebody who's held elected office 
being chairman of the election commission, there could have been a, a less controversial selection uh, out there among the, the field of potential candidates. So it, it's understandable that the KMT uh, legislators were upset. Of course, we don't ever want to see any kind of fighting, pushing and shoving, uh, food throwing or whatever other kind of antics uh, the legislators from both parties have historically engaged in. Uh, but we also should keep in mind the controversy coming out of the CEC's performance over the course of last year in preparation for the 10 referenda as well as the local elections that were held uh, simultaneously. And people were very upset with that. And the CEC is going to be uh, the target of criticism going forward. So if, if it's operational performance doesn't improve under Mr. Lee, uh, if people are queued up too long again on election day uh, next year, if there's high turnout, for example, even if there's no referendums uh, to, to vote on, uh, they're going to be the target of criticism, especially if the DPP candidate is reelected. Obviously, the, the KMT will make all sorts of allegations with regard to the CEC. Yeah, uh, I, I'm going to just come right, right out and say that the DPP was wrong in pursuing this. Um, the um, you know the, the and the reason for this is although the can, as a candidate uh, he, he's a good candidate. Um, you know he he served in the ministry as a minister of interior. I mean he's got a lot of uh, experience and qualifications. And the DPP, I think you know as a nominee, I think he was a good nominee. Um, and I, I think that the KMT grossly overreacted to this. However, the reason why I think this is wrong on the part of the DPP is that when the largest opposition party is vehemently opposed to uh, your candidate of what needs to be an absolutely unimpeachably uh, neutral candidate, the DPP should not have dug in its heels. They, they should have backed off and found a candidate that is universally or at least as close as possible uh, acceptable by the major by the major political parties and that is so that the process is unimpeachable now recently we've had a lot of issues with both uh, the DPP and the KMT playing games with their um, you know, with their electoral process and the primaries. Um, and so this is really just a bad look on top of the fact that the DPP has been playing games of their own internal primary. So this is, it's just compounding on this negative image of the DPP, and it's unnecessary. They really should not have pursued it. They should have gone forward and found a candidate. And, because right now they don't, they don't need this controversy, and it's not going to help. And as Ross noted, you know, or alluded to this, this candidate, this uh, person now has to basically be absolutely perfect and flawless and beyond reproach to a degree that may not be humanly possible come the next election. It's uh, going to be a challenge to reach that goal, though, Donovan, because yeah, of his, no, you know, know. his inherent <laughs> his inherent partisan background. Uh, but yeah. this is this is a pattern, right? This is not the first time that political appointees or nominees by the DPP have been very controversial for positions that uh, a 
shouldn't be controversial. And B, there are other people out there. It, it, it really, it's, it, it's the same problem that, that uh, the DPP administration has had for the last three years, and we just passed the three-year anniversary of Tsai Ing-wen's administration, that uh, they seem to have this desire, despite public disapproval, despite obvious, obvious opposition from the KMT, to give jobs out to their buddies. And that's what this ultimately is, and it's a big mistake. And, and, and as we've been discussing over the past few minutes, it might very well come back to hurt them. Yeah, I mean, traditionally in history, I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, I understand the KMT's point on this, I think, would be that the, the KMT for years institutionalized um, how and whom was chosen for whatever position. Um, and so there's a lot of institutional bias in favor of the KMT. But that's really an argument for why the DPP should be different from the KMT and better than the KMT historically on this front, rather than just simply emulating them in a tit-for-tat, well, they did it first. They should be doing better than this. And we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and now we'll look at Taiwan U.S. news, where there was a bevy of that this week. With It began with the government's decision to change the name of the Taiwan de facto embassy in the U.S., and that was met, rather, with mixed reactions. And if you want to know what it's called, the Coordination Council for North American Affairs has been renamed Taiwan Council for U.S. Affairs. The government, of course, has been busy touting it with Foreign Minister Joseph Wu celebrating the name change with one of his regular tweets saying times they are a changing really gotta love the new name however former American Institute in Taiwan director Douglas Powell was less enamoured simply saying that he didn't believe there was much significance in this particular development so Ross I take it you're on the side more of Douglas Powell rather than Joseph Wu there uh, director Paul, former Director Paul is absolutely correct. Uh, uh, Gavin, we need to clarify one thing, and, and uh, with all due respect, as you are, you are my buddy, I love you, but yeah, I think you, you misstated an important fact, and you're not the only person to do this in the last few days. The name of the de facto embassy was not changed. The de facto embassies in the United States are still going to be yep. called the Taipei Economic Cultural Representative Office, TACRO, or, or offices, the sub-offices, TICO. Uh, so the name of the uh, on the door in the United States has not changed change. That would have been more significant, right? So, and that upset a lot of uh, people in Taiwan. They, they say this is, this is cosmetic. If you really want to do something significant, and this is why uh, Douglas Paul probably made the remarks that he did, if you really want to do something significant, you change the name of the offices in Washington, D.C. and across the United States to remove Taipei and replace it with Taiwan. But the, the name that was changed here in Taiwan is, is it's like a parent entity of the offices in the United States. Most people in Taiwan are not familiar with what this parent entity is. And in fact, it's, it's, it's like a placeholder. It's not really an operating entity. If AIT wants to meet with the Taiwan government, they don't go over to this council's office. They go to the ministries or the presidential office. Uh, so this is just a very cosmetic change. And most people here in Taiwan really are not going to be impressed by this. And frankly, for the government to try and sell this as a big deal, they're, they're, they're not going to succeed. I mean, you cannot go to voters during the election campaign and 
say, we change the name of, of the Coordination Council to something else. Right? Nobody's going to care. In fact, Gavin, I'll, I'll just make one more final point here. Uh, polls actually show that the, the net approval, disapproval for the Thai government's foreign policy is actually a net negative. Um, now everything there I, that uh, you know that Ross said is correct, and that was the sort of the big point I, I would have made as well. Is that this is that Tecro is really what is really where all the action is in the U.S. Um, so the name change isn't isn't the most critical thing for the organization. They changed it. It's and uh, you know William Stanton just came out with an interesting piece uh, in uh, the Taiwan News about uh, you know. About uh, AIT Washington, which has a similarly vague and undefined role. Um, so, you know, the, the the change in that sense is insignificant. Now, on the other hand, uh, as Ross noted, though, is that most commentators and most articles have not noted the distinction between TECRO and what used to be the North American Coordination Council. Um, and so most of the press reporting that I've seen has been, oh, the new name, the new name, the new name, wow, isn't this exciting? So actually, in a sense, uh, Joseph Wu uh, has been successful in that he got a lot of press to basically call this an, a major achievement uh, it, when it, it, it really isn't. Um, now, if the name change, as Ross had noted, had been uh, to all the offices, that would have been a much, much, much bigger deal because, and the new name is a, a much better name. It basically states what the office is for. It basically says, you know, this, you know, this, this office is an embassy office, essentially, is what it says. Unfortunately, it's not going to be on the na- nameplate of anything, and that, that's a big disappointment. No, the people in the office, the agency, will just get new stationery. Well, there is, yeah. there, there is actually a nameplate outside. Donovan, I've got to correct you here. There actually is a nameplate outside its office here in Taipei, and, and that's going to, <laughs> I'm sure to be changed. One. <laughs> uh, and and, and it, it, it says very clearly that it is the, the headquarters of, of the Tecro. So it's got yeah. both names, and they'll be changing. In fact, it was, it was in some of the media reports that they were showing they, this. They'll save money. Yeah, but, but it's they, not the nameplates in the U.S. That's correct. Really well, that matters. was the point I made, right? Yeah. They are going to save money, though, because, of course, the Coordination Council for North American Affairs <laughs> takes up a larger piece <laughs> yes. of copper than the Taiwan Council for U.S. Affairs. <laughs> So there you go. We're hands down for saving money for the taxpayer. Anyway, looking at other US news this week, China lost its rag, so to speak, on Monday after news broke that National Security Council Secretary General David Lee had held talks in Washington with White House National Security Advisor John Bolton. Now, not much has been said about what went down in the meeting. In fact, they've not even released a date of the meeting. But it still enraged Beijing, who went back and basically said its usual blithering stuff about its extremely dissatisfied and resolutely opposes such meetings as Beijing remains against any form of official exchanges between the US and Taiwan. Of course, this meeting, Ross, some people hailed it as a great breakthrough while others were a bit more critical because, of course, David Lee is not with it in a member of the DPP, so to speak. I think the key thing to be critical about is not necessarily Mr. Lee not being a member of the DPP, but uh, not the key decision maker, notwithstanding his job title, but but really not the key decision maker when it comes to foreign policy, national defense, or, or China-Taiwan relations issues. Clearly, that that's housed uh, within 
president size, most inner circle, which does include the foreign minister. Uh, but whether it actually includes uh, Mr. Lee or he's more uh, in, in a consulting kind of role, I, I think it's the latter. He's, he's not really the key decision maker. And that was the same when he was foreign minister uh, earlier in, in, in the Thai administration and then swapped into this role. Uh, so I think it would be uh, an exaggeration uh, to say that he's a decision maker and that this is really a, was a crucial development uh, for relations. And, and another thing to keep in mind, National Security Council uh, officials from both sides have met many times before, <laughs> whether in Taipei or in Washington, D.C., uh, it's been in the media plenty of times when high-level National Security Council officials from the Washington, from Washington D.C. have come to Taipei. No, it hasn't been the National Security Advisor, uh, but uh, we shouldn't over overestimate the significance. Yeah, it was it was uh, allowed to be stated publicly, uh, but I think also given that uh, Mr. Lee is not a core decision maker. Uh, that that kind of detracts a bit from the importance. I think it would be far more of a breakthrough for Foreign Minister Wu to meet with the Secretary of State in Washington, D.C. than for um, Mr. Lee to meet with John Bolton. And I think that goes to another point you made, Gavin, about uh, we don't know what exactly they talked about. And my guess is it was probably generalities rather than specifics. Um, okay, here, here's, I, I think, what the real interesting story is. Reportedly, who was in the meeting uh, is, was the representative from Nauru, and I think the other one was Palau or one of the, one of the uh, nations in the region. Um, and uh, so I think this was signaling on the part of the U.S. government to China. Um, and what's also interesting about, uh, about this is right around the same time that the U.S. allowed this information to go out, uh, that Bolton and met with Lee and representatives from Oceania uh, nations uh, at, the, at an almost identical period, like within like a couple of days of, of this, uh, the the uh, the Prime Minister uh, of Australia, uh, Morrison, who just just gone through an election. His first trip uh, post-election is to the Solomon Islands, which is right now wavering uh, between choosing Taiwan and China, and they're, they're going through a very public debate there uh, on the Solomon Islands. At the, uh, also, all of a sudden, out of the blue, a right smack dab in the middle of this, there was all kinds of space given, relatively speaking, uh, on the People's Daily on Xi Jinping meeting with, uh, I believe it was the head of state of Vanuatu, uh, which, of course, is a country which has a population of a, basically one apartment block in Shanghai. And that was an awful lot of coverage, an awful lot of uh, detail uh, discussions about how you know Xi Jinping thought it would, they were so important and how... Uh, and there was an awful lot about that. So there's a lot of signaling going on here. So, uh, you know, what exactly is going on? Why is the, all these conversations and signaling going on? Now, I can only have a theory here, and that is uh, there has been talk in uh, which Vanuatu, for example, has specifically denied um, but there's a lot of concerns that China wants to uh, get a port or establish a base somewhere in one of these countries, which, of course, would be a huge financial boon to whichever country it is. Um, and that would allow China to have a forward base outside of the first island chain. The other thing that was specifically referred to is there's an organization of Pacific states uh, where China was recently uh, humiliated uh, by the uh, head of, of Nauru, if, I, if memory serves. Um, 
and there was some references to to that in 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 the article in the People's Daily. So I think also China is starting to flex its muscles uh, within that organization to try and be uh, more influential. Now they're also the largest trading partner of the Solomon Islands, where the Australian Prime Minister Morrison has just gone or is about to go to. Um, and so there's there's definitely there's a big power play going on, uh, kind of like the you know years ago the great game and you know <laughs> in in Central Asia it seems to be playing out now uh, something like this in uh, Oceania. Uh, Gavin, I think also uh, among those list of recent developments, we should mention that Senator Gardner from Colorado has reintroduced his Taipei Act, which would basically threaten countries that uh, end diplomatic relations with yeah. Taiwan with retaliatory action, uh, decrease in foreign aid, et cetera, from the United States. So th- that that's also a, a recent development in this regard. However, one quick point. If David Lee met Bolton accompanied or at the invitation of, of these other countries, uh, ambassadors, or leaders who, who um, have formal relations with Taiwan actually detracts from the significance of the meeting because it comes across more as, oh, here's here's our friend from that country you don't recognize, Mr. Bolton, and we've brought him to the meeting with us. Hope you don't mind, as opposed to uh, the significance of a one-on-one meeting. It's unclear who invited whom. So the, the real question, Mark, is did, and this smells a little bit more likely to me, is that Bolton was the one who, who issued the invite. Um, I find it highly unlikely, considering the personality and character of John Bolton, that, you know, the representative of Nauru calls him up and says, uh, hey, hey, uh, Director Bolton, uh, we'd like to meet with you, A, and he'd be going, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. And, uh, you know, and we'd like to bring along the representative of Taiwan. And, he'd be, you know, I, I just don't see that happening. I, I think Bolton was the driving force on this one. Right, we shall move far away from politics and far away from America and far away in Taipei still, though, when we're going to talk about, well, President Tsai Ing-wen this week. Now, she's appeared in a Ministry of Foreign Affairs promo video asking tourists to be her guests and spend a night at the presidential office building. Now, the stay is only open to 20 groups of guests and only some areas of the building will be open to the guests during their stays. Now, the offer is part of the government's marking of the building's 100th anniversary. And, of course, it's only open to tourists, Ross, because apparently you wanted to apply to stay there. But if you're not a tourist, you can't stay there. Right. So I live here. I'm a resident, as you are, as Donovan is, and we're not eligible. I I think this is a pattern that the government has of showing more love for foreigners outside of Taiwan (laughs) than for the foreigners who live here. Right. I I mean, government, if you are listening to Taiwan this week, you should be thinking about doing more to to get the foreigners who live here to support Taiwan, since we naturally already do support Taiwan, rather than somebody coming from overseas who doesn't know anything about Taiwan, most likely, and they're going to stay here for a few days. They'll say some wonderful things and then they'll leave. Uh, but uh, there, there's a legitimate question about whether this degrades uh, the the stature of the presidential office by having uh, a, a bunch of tourists uh, have a slumber party there. Uh, the, there. There's probably better ways to promote the presidency, the presidential office building's anniversary than having tourists sleep over. And we don't even know if they have the, the, the best facilities there. Uh, for those who've been inside the presidential office, uh, many of the rooms there actually do show its age. And, and I'll add, Gavin, for anyone who's ever stayed in a 
government-run kind of hostels, or there's some buildings around Taiwan that, that uh, for example, may have formerly been associated with the military, but now they're kind of like uh, run as hostels or uh, inexpensive hotels. A lot of these facilities are not very nice. They're certainly not three, four, or five-star. <laughs> so, Donovan, want to stay at the presidential building? Sure, why not? I'd be, you know, that would be something to... Some to be able to say I'd done. Yeah, definitely. And, and I agree with Ross. I think that, you know, definitely we are a, a underappreciated uh, uh, minority constituency here in the country. Um, I, I, I do think that there, there may be some value in this. Um, it takes it takes very little time from the pre- you know takes very little time for the president, uh, but it, you know it's it's warm and fuzzy you know what people call soft power diplomacy. And you remember a little while back uh, it was the I believe the Polish Prime Minister, if memory serves, um, uh, who met with some uh, you know some Singaporeans and Taiwanese couples and uh, you know and then basically just randomly invited them into the uh, the Prime Minister or the President. I I can't remember the exact details, but brought them into the uh, the effective head of state's office, showed them around, you know, treated them uh, very nicely, and this made international press. Um, and it shows the openness of the country, a very welcoming attitude. So for the president of Taiwan to go out and show a very welcoming, warm attitude to the world, it might get some uh, international press, but it's definitely a million miles away from the kind of press that right China is getting right now. So I think, you know, it's it, considering the, the costs uh, of doing this relative to the potential reward in contrasting Taiwan with China. I, I think it's a. I think it's a. It's worth trying. But Diamond, the situations are completely not comparable. This, with Poland, they were getting such negative media attention because of some of their human rights or LGBT uh, or, or t- policies or attempts to stack the judiciary with, with with their political friends. Or you have all of Europe or the EU saying you guys are are turning evil. So what do they do? They do some try and do some PR. And that's not an issue for Taiwan. People already like Taiwan. Uh, and you say, like, there's low cost. Actually, this blew up domestically. So you have the organizations that were involved in this uh, had had to issue press releases explaining why they're doing this, trying to justify this, uh, trying to explain, like, why we're not ma- violating the hotel management regulations and stuff like that. <laughs> so there is a cost. There's, a, there's now become a huge time cost. And, and what's going to happen, uh, you know, depending on who actually stays, right? They're, they're gonna, they have some backpacker or as I said earlier, some person really doesn't know much about Taiwan. They're going to say, oh, Taiwan is so nice. Well, you get that already. You can go go on the Tourism Bureau website or, or read their magazine. I mean, there's always the foreigner who went to a night market and says, oh, Taiwan is so wonderful. You know, we've been there, done that, right? This is this is not going to make Taiwan's economy any better. It's not going to make Taiwan any safer. And it's not going to get President Tsai reelected. But does it come with breakfast? Is breakfast included? Well, that's what I want to know. Is breakfast buffet included? Oh, now you want a buffet, Gavin. Of course. I think you're asking for a bit too much. You know, maybe they'll go out to the neighborhood around the presidential office and get, get some you know, street, street food, uh, some yo tiao, you know, some typical breakfast food, dojiang. I, I actually think this is this could uh, if, if if this works successfully the way I think they're trying to. I, I, I again I, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with with this. I think that it's it's the kind of thing that you get international coverage from, which you're not going to get from your average foreigner coming through. Uh, it's that cute human interest story. President of Taiwan met with some tourists 
who stayed in the, you know, it, and they put in, you know, a 20, 30 second little filler piece, which is very nice, makes Taiwan look great. It didn't matter what the point was that got Poland all that positive attention. My point was uh, that Poland got the positive attention from, from their moves. That was my underlying point. It didn't really matter what, what else is going on. Taiwan right now needs to get positive international attention. Uh, because China's doing everything it can to undermine it straight across the board. So, uh, you know, that is, that's the fundamental purpose of it. That's what Taiwan is trying to accomplish. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But let's, there's very little to be lost. Nobody's going to remember this in the electoral campaign. They're, they're not going to go, oh my goodness, there possibly were violations of the Hotel Act back last year when some foreigners came and stayed at the presidential palace. No. But we'll, we'll potentially have a slightly warm and fuzzy feeling, even if they can't remember why, toward Taiwan, which is definitely not like authoritarian China, who's throwing thousands or millions of people in you know, concentration camps and prisons. Uh, it's a very, very nice contrast to underscore and underline uh, contrasting Taiwan to China, and it's warm and fuzzy and positive. Right, but is breakfast included? We don't know. We want to know. That's what's important to me. Anyway, that's where we're going to leave it here on Taiwan this week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith. Yeah, have a great weekend. Uh, you know, if you're going to the Hangul, you uh, uh, rally. Uh, enjoy yourself. Tell us all how it went. And there won't be a show next Friday, June the 7th, as it will be Dragon Boat Day here in Taiwan, and we'll be too busy eating pyramid-shaped glutinous rice dumplings stuffed with an array of tasty fillings, and so will Ross, except he won't be eating the meat ones. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps, and don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.